today on Ag News Daily. For corn went below a certain level, the government would buy access production. And so that's the second element would be the grain reserve. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, joined by co-host Delaney Howell, who is in an airport. Delaney, how you doing? I am in an airport, so if you hear any airport noises, that's why. That is a good reason to hear airport noises. That is for sure. I we Yes, are, indeed. We are also joined by Madison Honkamp, holding down the fort and keeping us recorded, keeping us on track. Madison, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Mike. How are you? I am wonderful. The sun is out, at least here in Chicago. I know there is still some rain stretching across the Corn Belt, running all the way from Kansas-Oklahoma border, up through Iowa, up through parts of Illinois, and eventually they're going to make their way into Michigan, which is an area that certainly doesn't need any more moisture, but it looks like it is coming. Outside of the weather, Delaney Howell, what news are you seeing in the world of agriculture today? Well, I spent my morning this morning with a group of equipment manufacturer and folks like that. And so this isn't really news, but I was just absolutely like impressed and stunned and everything in between by this. I was talking to a gentleman after I spoke today about hemp production, and he's from the state of Kentucky, which is, of course, a big hemp producing state. And he told me there is a company that we're absolutely going to have to try and get on the podcast called Hempwood just gearing up for production, making hemp floors instead of like bamboo floors or something else. They're making hemp floors and they are selling it. A six by six inch square is $20 a square. And they've contracted about 70,000 acres in Western Kentucky to grow hemp for this hemp wood flooring unit. I was blown away by that. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to have to get them on. That sounds like a really expensive flooring. I thought so, too. I thought so, too. Mm. It's fancy, though, because it's made of hemp. It's definitely different. I, yeah. Yeah, it certainly sounds unique. I could see it going into some uh, places where they really put a premium on making it environmentally friendly and sustainable mm-hmm. and all of that. I imagine mm-hmm. that is their, uh, you know, sweet spot. I would imagine you're right. Their niche market. Yes, indeed. How about you, Madison? What news are you seeing today? Well, Mike, I saw today that the senators are seeking a year-end deal in rural finance programs. So a bipartisan group of about 31 senators, mostly from the western states, um, are asking Senate leaders to include any year-end legislation um, onto a two-year reauthorization for the payment in lieu of taxes program and the so-called Secure Rural Schools and Community Self-Determination Act. Um, And these programs were created to help those counties with large areas of federally owned lands, like forest and rangelands. Obviously, since governments, the federal government doesn't pay local property taxes, these counties are missing out on significant revenue. Um, So, but... This is set to expire at the end of fiscal 2019, so hopefully they will be getting that pushed through here soon. All right. Well, we will have to keep an eye on that and see if it does actually, in Mm -hmm. fact, get pushed through. Yes, definitely. Well, speaking of getting pushed through, it is expected, three sources confirmed, that there will be a biofuel deal announcement this Friday. The indications are that as of Friday at 9 o'clock Eastern Time, 8 o'clock here in the Central Time Zone, we will get the White House's, quote, giant package, uh, end quote. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, uh, related to <laughs> ethanol. Um, we we already, thanks to Reuters, know basically what this is going to entail. Effectively, they are going to be reincorporating on a three-year rolling average the amount of gallons that have been exempted through the RFS uh, SRE small refinery exemption process, bringing those gallons back in over the next three years. It is also expected that uh, we might see some type of incentive for gas stations to put in more blender pumps in order to get that E15 gasoline farther out into the countryside. But we will keep an eye on this. We'll be watching the news wires at 8 o'clock Central Time tomorrow to see just what exactly this, quote, giant package entails and uh, whether or not it's actually going to do what President Trump has promised, which is provide a rebound in That's the corn market. John Davis. Can you hear that? Yeah. Yep. And okay, give me a second. Well, yes, we will indeed be watching that uh, big package, Mike. It's nice. Uh, nice. Giant package. Oh, giant. My bad. Yes. Well, in other uh, giant news ahead of official trade talks with China, the USDA has announced another export sale this time of U.S. wheat headed for delivery. About 130,000 metric tons uh, have been bought and purchased to be delivered to China. And so far, since trade talks have resumed in September, we've seen China purchase more than 2.1 million tons of U.S. grains in a good faith gesture, perhaps, or maybe they really need the product. That's the million-dollar question. Is China buying it just to kind of grease the wheels of mm -hmm. a trade deal, or, as uh, we've talked to Ted Seifert about here over the past couple of weeks, is China concerned that, you know, maybe we don't have the soybean crop that USDA is anticipating, and uh, they just want to get in early while prices mm -hmm. are still, you know, relatively cheap uh, compared to where they have been, given tight stocks in the past. All right, I've got a little piece of news here also on the, oh, trade front. Um, we had a victory for the United States in the World Trade Organization earlier today. Uh, President Donald Trump was pretty proud about this. Basically, the U.S. got officially the green light to place tariffs on European Union goods because the EU has been, according to the WTO, overly subsidizing the Airbus uh, airplane company. And uh, so they said, yep, the Airbus has been overly subsidized. That has hurt the United States. So now the United States gets to put retaliatory tariffs on. And basically there are – the countries that are being targeted are the countries that are part of the Airbus consortium. And that includes uh, the U.K., Scotland in particular, Spanish winemakers, and France. And basically these tariffs are taking charge or taking a look at um, Scottish whiskey makers – uh, they're looking at Irish butter producers, that Kerrygold butter that has really caught on in popularity here in the U.S., Spanish wine, and uh, cheese from France, and a lot of other EU countries are all going to be targeted by this new round of tariffs. However, even though these are sanctioned by the WTO, we might very well see France put retaliatory tariffs on U.S. products once this thing goes into effect. So we will see exactly what all this means for the trade war going forward. I know, Mike, that I saw this as well, and I saw that some uh, people were actually happy about the new tariffs going on European cheeses and yogurt and hoping that that might help the dairy farmers here in the U.S. 
Yeah, I mean, it certainly might. That Kerrygold, this surprised me, is currently the second best-selling butter in the United States. I've never even heard of it. What is? Oh, really? It's very fancy. Mm-hmm. You'll see it in all the, all the you know major grocery stores carry it, and yeah, it's Irish. Hmm. Okay, I'll have to test it out sometime. Yeah, or just buy good old American butter. I, like yeah, I, mean, I, I prefer that myself, but you know. All right. Well, what other news do you have for us, Delaney? <laughs> well, since we're talking about dairy, the World Dairy Expo is going on this week, and Secretary Sonny Perdue was there. He apparently angered small dairy farmers in particular when he said, quote, there is no doubt that there has been economic stress in the dairy industry, but we believe better days are ahead. And I'm not really sure why this got the small dairies offended, except he also said, quote, the demise of these operations is not an inevitability. It is a choice informed by misguided politics entrenching the interests of big corporate agriculture at the expense of small farmers. That was quoted by a Democratic representative and essentially they're they're upset because they think that purdue is picking on smaller farmers i'm not really sure if that's the case but that has been the headline apparently circulating and we've also seen in other dairy related news since i'm on the topic of dairy is this year's m what is it margin dairy coverage so mdc program this year has paid out more than 300 million dollars two producers 22,000 producers approximately so far and I, I just thought this was interesting but they said if this program hadn't been enacted in the new farm bill that they would have paid out only about $75,000 this year as opposed to $300,000 this year for dairy producers oh wow so a big difference there yes indeed how about you Madison do you have any other news for us today I am actually all out of news Mike All right. Well, I just have one other quick piece of news as we look at the outside markets today. We saw the Dow Jones Industrials and the S&P sell off pretty hard this morning on news that, uh, you know, perhaps the the manufacturing sector was slowing down a little bit. And then it reversed because if the manufacturing sector is slowing down, that might, in fact, mean the Fed is going to cut interest rates again, which was bullish. And so as of now, we we see both the Dow and the S&P up on the day, which was uh, not expected when the markets opened this morning. Well, Madison, speaking of markets, should we see where the grains and livestock markets finished up for the day? Well, Mike, before we jump into the markets, let's take a look and see what Ray Bohax has for us today for our Hot Rod Farmer Minute. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter Podcast found on the Global Ag Network. Often the most challenging part of work in any machine is keeping the fasteners, brackets, or parts in order and properly identified. An additional concern may be the location of a special fastener due to its size, length, or a worry over marginal threads. The issue of keeping things organized and identified changes little if you are working on an engine, planter, or center pivot irrigation unit. The system you employ to accomplish this must be easy to work with, adaptable, and inexpensive. A picket fence stand of corn speaks volumes about the quality of the farmer. Putting everything back in its rightful place when reassembling a machine makes the same statement about a mechanic. 
you wouldn't plant corn with a broadcast spreader, then why do so many throw parts into a box and try to figure it out afterwards? As an aside, properly identifying and storing items removed from a machine makes reassembly extremely quick and produces better results. It is important when it comes to moving parts that they be reinstalled in the same location. I tried all different methods with varying success until one day I stumbled on a concept that worked great and cost little to no money. I used brown paper lunch bags purchased in a supermarket. You can get 100 new bags for around $2. It is best to use a black magic marker and write on the bag what is inside. If need be, you can make any notes or a crude drawing to identify a location or concern. My bags read something like this, cylinder number two intake valve parts. You can also add a footnote such as check threads on stud. If the parts are fairly clean when they go into the bag, you'll be surprised how sturdy they are. If the machine is going to be apart for a long time, gather up the bags and place them in a tub or in the cab. When it comes time to put it all back together, it will be a breeze. All right. Well, big thanks to Ray there at the Hot Rod Farmer Podcast. Speaking of hot rods, well, no, I guess we don't have any hot rods in the markets today. We do have some mixed trade in the grains, however. December corn was up a penny at 388 and three quarters, with the March contract also up a penny to finish the day at four dollars and three quarter cents. In soybeans, a little bit of weakness on the day. The November contract was down two cents at nine eleven and three quarters. The January down one and three quarter pennies to close the day at nine twenty six even. And Chicago wheat mixed trade with the December down a quarter cent at four eighty eight and three quarters. The March unchanged on the day, finished up at 496 and a quarter. Jumping over to the world of livestock, we did see a little bit of a bid in the cattle complex today. October live cattle up 75 cents at 106.80. December contract up 20 cents. Finished the day at 110.82 and a half. In feeder cattle, the October contract was up 27 and a half cents. Finished at 142.35. November up 42 and a half cents. Finished the day at 142.10 and mixed trade in lean hogs. The October contract was up 22.5 cents at 62.42.50. The December down a dollar even on the day to close at 68.10. And jumping over to the dairy market, we saw that October contract climb 14 cents to finish at 18.50 with the November class three milk up six cents, wrapping up the day at 18.38. Without further ado, let's kick it over to our interview for today's Ag News Daily Podcast. Well, folks, today we are talking policy, and we are doing this with Dr. Sylvia Secchi. She is an associate professor at the University of Iowa in the Department of Geographical and Sustainability Sciences, and wanted to have her on today because she shared an interesting tweet thread a few days ago talking about some of the policies that are being put forward by some of the candidates running for president. So, Dr. Secchi, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and to explain to us a little bit about what these policies might mean. Yes, so I was specifically referring to supply management, which has been proposed by some of the Democratic candidates. And let me just start by saying that there's been some confusion on what supply management is because Canada actually uses supply management for their dairy sector, but their supply management program is substantially different from the one that's being proposed for the United States and would not likely be replicable uh, in the U.S., because in Canada, what happens is they effectively close their borders. So they have a quota system, and they don't really import or export very much. 
And so then that quota uh, for dairy is distributed across farmers. The, because the quota restricts production, the prices are higher, and so the consumers pay higher prices. This is not what has been proposed in the U.S., because in the U.S. we're big ag exporters, and so such a system would not be viable. Gotcha. Well, let's talk a little bit about what has been proposed. Uh, two candidates in particular, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, have uh, have integrated some form of supply management into their kind of rejuvenating rural America policy. And bring us up to speed a little bit. What kind of supply management are they promoting? So their program is essentially um, New Deal 2.0, and it's based on um, – several things. So there is a parity price, so there is a price floor. So um, that's the first tenant. So if the price for corn went below a certain level, the government would buy access production. And so that's the second element would be these grain reserves. And then the third element is in order to limit that overproduction, there would be land set aside. So I'm sure some of your older listeners remember that these were the basis for agricultural policy uh, that came out of um, the New Deal. And so the idea there is that the, the, um, you know, the farmers make a good living uh, because they have guaranteed minimum prices. My concern with this approach is that if you have a guaranteed price, you are still favoring larger producers because the more you produce, right, the, the more that, that price gets, um, the, you know, multiplied by the quantity you produce. Um, my second concern is that these grain uh, reserves would have impact on, they, historically, uh, through PL480, they were um, given away, these grain reserves were given away, these butter reserves were given away as foreign aid. First of all, mm. that's not WTO compliance, right? Right. So and we're going to raise some foreign has, concerns. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's going to be disruptive of international ag trade, and it's, it's going to have impact on developing countries. And right, because if that mind, product is free, why would they have any interest in developing their own? Yes, and this is one of the long-term critiques of U.S. food aid. You know, the Obama administration went away from in-kind um, aid uh, that was essentially a way to get to dump excess U.S. production, and this would bring it back. Gotcha. And then I've heard one of the other uh, topics that has been brought about with this whole push towards, or at least these two candidates push towards um, – supply management is that with the land set aside program, perhaps there will be environmental benefits because we're going to be pulling land out of crop production, putting it back into grassland, pasture, CRP type programs. What are your thoughts there? I mean, that is something you've specifically spent a lot of time working on. Would there be environmental benefits to this kind of a program? So this is, um, this is actually for me, that's the crux of the issue because I am an environmental economist. So my concern is that the main goal of this program would be to reduce production, not to provide environmental benefits. And so to the extent that we don't do targeting, uh, we have lots of evidence that the, the biggest bang for the buck in this land set-aside program 
is not actually to reduce production. It's to choose those parcels that are better at providing um, ecosystem services. And my concern is that we we we're not going to uh, really uh, target the land that needs to be targeted. Gotcha. So in the sense of uh, of targeting land, you're looking at you know land alongside streams is going to be the most uh, we're going to get the most bang for our buck. Land on hillsides, that kind of things, and there wouldn't be that sort of mechanism in most of these policies. Am, am I understanding it correctly? Exactly, because these kind of policies, what they want is they want to take massive amounts of land out of production. And what I'm arguing is that we need to use more of a scalpel approach and have these riparian buffers. This, maybe we need to have wildlife corridors. You know, so we, we need to think more. If, if the goal is the environment, we should think about the environment first. So my concern is that historically in the U.S., when policies have had dual goals, the income goal has has always come first, and then the environmental goal kind of like gets you know left in the background. Absolutely, and so let's talk about the income goal a little bit with the idea. And so uh, both both Madison and I are, are here on this interview. We are too young to recall much farm policy before the Freedom to Farm Bill in 1996. So would this result in higher prices for growers? Do you think, with uh, based on the research you've done? Well, see, here is the, the here, here buys the rug. Um, this kind of program approach would create a lot of opportunities for what we call rent seeking because the devil is going to be in the details. The devil is going to be in how we fix that parity price and how fast input costs catch up with the parity mm-hmm. price because, of course, farmers don't just care about prices. They care about their margins, right? So... There's going to be a lot of um, back and forth if a program like this gets instituted on how high or how low these parity prices are, how they get adjusted, how much oversupply results from these uh, parity prices. So really, I, I can't, you know, unless I know what the price is and the market conditions are, I don't know how good this is going to be for farmers. Um, and And my concern is that we are, uh, not fundamentally fixing the problems that we have in, in, in our agricultural sector of consolidation, uh, of environmental issues, of a depopulating uh, rural, uh, you know, uh, economy. Uh, we're just like going back instead of going forward. This was a, the kind of program that was put together before climate change uh, was a problem, when rural economies were still vibrant you know there were lots of people living out of town we weren't seeing this kind of exodus out of rural areas so i feel like maybe we need to take stock of what's been happening and the difference in our agricultural sector today so what type of policies do you feel might be a better approach or at least a a more realistic approach for people to consider as we get into this election cycle and these type of conversations come up more and more so so far, the people on the left have got mad with me. Now I'm going to make the people on the right mad with me, right? So, <laughs> uh, I think farmers need to have a guaranteed um, level of income that needs to be decoupled from production. And it has mm-hmm. to be tied to environmental performance. 
you know, we want, I, I, I live in Iowa. My children were born in Iowa. I really care about the health of rural economies in the state. And I think that as long as we have massive consolidation, this kind of like uh, roller coaster of prices that takes out, we're seeing this with dairy right now. I think that's also why uh, supply management is back in the news because in Canada, supply management works for dairy. I think we need to ensure that farmers can make a living creating as few distortions as possible. So how do we do that? I mean, that's the million-dollar question. Well, in Europe, they do have decoupled uh, payments to farmers that are tied to environmental performance. So farms are, farmers are guaranteed a minimum income uh, if they perform a minimum of uh, certain environmental activities. And, you know, an, a possibility would be if you do more than that, uh, you, besides getting, of course, the income from your, the sale of your product, you could participate in carbon offset markets. Uh, you could, uh, you know, grow premium products. You, you would, could uh, uh, add value on the farm. Um, I think that the issue, though, is stop chasing that extra production bushel because otherwise we all know, you know, that that, that is a kind of like an inelastic world we live in. Um, and, and prices will go down. Absolutely. As prices go down, growers then realize you've got to produce more bushels to make a living, to break even. So the the interest in production skyrockets, and now we've got more grain in a world that wants less grain, and we see prices collapse even further. It's a vicious cycle. Yes, exactly. And I think we, you know, this is, I don't pretend that this is the only solution. This is a solution that is uh, on the ground somewhere else. Uh, I just when I when I made that comment on Twitter, it's more more like if we are proposing new things, we want to make sure we don't have unintended consequences, and we consider all the issues that farmers grapple with today, not the issues they grappled with a hundred years ago. That's right. It's got to be timely and it's got to make sense. Dr. Secchi, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and for helping us think through this issue in a little more detail than we might get on a uh, campaign flyer. Thank you. All right. Well, that does it for today's episode, ladies and gentlemen. But if you have missed episodes in the past, be sure to log on to our website. Head to agnewsdaily.com. You can find all of our past episodes archived right there, ready for your eardrums pleasure, I guess. And uh, you can always interact with us on social media as well. Just head to Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we shall be there. And with that, Madison Honkamp, shall we let the people go? Let's let them go.